from John chapter 7. The gospel writer John writes these things. We're going to read the verse, the first uh, 24 verses. John 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to Jesus, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. In about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. And the Jews marveled saying, how is it that this man has so much learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to, is anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I make a, whole, a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, we did a sermon talk back. Um, occasionally, not every week, but a lot of weeks, we produce this little podcast called The Sermon Talkback. If you haven't listened where, listened, where we go a little deeper into the sermon, uh, we give more application, we answer questions. But in, in response to the Man is Dead series, uh, I had Colin Hansen, who's a good friend of mine, a good friend of our churches. He, he writes for the Gospel Coalition and um, is, is um, uh, just a great thinker. I had him on to talk about faith in a secular age. What does the Christian faith look like in kind of the secular age where we found ourselves? And it was a great conversation. I encourage you to check it out if you have not had the chance yet. But one of the things that Colin talked about, he, he gave the analogy uh, on the podcast of an Anglo-Saxon warrior in 800 AD. And Colin and I were talking about these, this idea of impulse, this idea of tribe, and this idea of narrative. Impulse, tribe, 
and narrative. And to talk about this a little further, he gave this analogy of this Anglo-Saxon warrior in 800 AD who had two impulses. One impulse was to kill people. He was a warrior. He was violent. He wanted to take out his aggression on others. The other impulse that the warrior had, though, was it was same-sex attraction. He was attracted to men. Now, in 800 AD, the Anglo-Saxon warrior, the, the culture or the narrative or the tribe that was around him would have said to him, look, your impulse to kill people, you need to have at it, right? That's how you show you're a man. That's, that's how you have honor. That's how you have respect in this world. That was what the narrative language was saying at the time. The narrative was very strong toward violence or toward strength at that time. And so that impulse that the warrior had was fanned along. It was, it was encouraged. But the other impulse that he had, the, the sexual attraction to men that he had, the, the, everybody around him in, in that day in 800 AD would have said, no, 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 that, that impulse you've got to suppress. Like you, you, can't, you can't show that impulse. You've got to suppress that impulse. And Colin said, you know, it's, it's interesting as if you took the same Anglo-Saxon warrior, the same man, and you put him in any American city today, his impulses would be the same. But because the narrative or the tribal language has shifted, he would get the opposite messaging. Everybody would say, look, sexual freedom, sexual liberty, nobody should tell you who or what or what you can't have sex with. Go, go for it. But your impulse to kill people, you, you got to suppress that. You cannot exercise that impulse. And understanding this idea of impulse, narrative, tribe, I think is incredibly helpful for maneuvering faith in a secular age. And I actually think it's incredibly helpful in understanding today's text. So I wanna talk about a couple of things with you from this text. We're jumping back into John. We have been kind of in and out of John for the last uh, few years. Um, but for the next few weeks, we're going to be in John 7 and 8. And uh, I want to talk about two, th- two ideas that come up in today's passage. First, the world. And then second, authority, the idea of authority. So let's talk about the world. Now, in terms of review, I need to kind of get you up to speed. There's two kind of events that are framing today's text. One happened in John 5. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he heals this man that was an invalid for 38 years. He he references this here. The man's whole body was sick and Jesus healed him. But the problem was he healed him on the Sabbath day. He healed him on a a Saturday, on the Sabbath day, uh, this day of rest and worship where no work was to be done. And for this, rather than being impressed by this, rather than celebrating this amazing thing that God had done, this, this invalid who was sick for 38 years, was literally totally restored and healed in their presence. Rather than being happy about this, the Jews hated it. And Jesus answered, rather than saying, I'm sorry, he said, my father is always working and so am I. And they knew when he said my father that he was referring to God. And so that made them all the more mad. Now all of a sudden he's not only is healing on the Sabbath, he's saying that God is his father and they wanted to kill him. The other thing that had happened, John chapter six, is Jesus had done this amazing sign in Galilee. He fed 5,000 people. This is Galilee's about 75 miles north of Jerusalem in the region of Jesus's hometown. 
And, and everybody marveled at this, but everybody was confused at Jesus because after he fed all of these people and all these people started following him and were amazed at him, he started saying really weird stuff like, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no place with me. And the people weren't, the people weren't frustrated or angry with him. They were just sad. They were just confused. They didn't know what he was talking about. And so they quit following him. And as we see here, even his brothers are of that group. They recognize there's something special about Jesus, but they just, who is this guy? And, and you could imagine the brothers of Jesus, they knew that he was of their family. And they probably didn't like that there was so much mixed talk about this member of their own family. So, so the, today's passage picks up with this encounter that Jesus is having with his own brothers. Now, you say, well, the brothers of Jesus, how does that work? Well, of course, we believe that Jesus, as the old creed says, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, right? So we, we don't believe that Jesus is, um, it, you know, was the son of Joseph, right? We believe that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin. He's fully man, fully God. But of course, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph were married and they had a family together. And apparently they had a lot of children. Apparently they had a lot of sons. Um, we know this because we see reference to their, these brothers. Now it's interesting, two of the brothers of Jesus at least, and, and maybe others, eventually would believe in him. In fact, they became great leaders in the New Testament church. Two New Testament books are written by brothers, these kind of half-brothers, these family brothers of Jesus. The book of James and the book of Jude uh, were written by some of these guys. But at this time, they don't believe. And again, everybody's got this mixed opinion of him. They don't know what to do with him. And so we don't exactly know what their intentions were. It, it may have been kind of very sinister, right? They may have wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem and be put to death. They may have just wanted him to be humiliated. They at least wanted him to stop it. <laughs> just whatever you're doing, Jesus, stop it. And so they say, go to Jerusalem. Don't hide here in Galilee. Go let the world know. And they knew, and Jesus knew that they knew that these Jews were out to get him. It was the Feast of Booths. It was a time where everyone was commemorating God's care for the people. And this is important. We'll talk about this later. There's a time where people commemorating that God took care of the people in the wilderness, that he fed them in the wilderness, that uh, he provided for them in the wilderness. But Jesus says in verse six, to his brother's request to go to Jerusalem, to present himself at this feast. He says, my time has not yet come but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. And in a sense, what he's saying there is because you're of the world, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. You go be of the world, if you will. But I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. Now, when Jesus says my time there, he's referring, the, the Greek is kairos. He's, he's referring to my appointed time. He, he knew that he had an appointed time. He knew that one day he would be delivered over uh, to be killed. But he's saying here, my time, this appointed time has not yet come. 
But the other interesting word here is this idea of world. The world, so the Greek is cosmos. The world cannot hate you since you're, you're of it. It can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Cosmos can refer to the world in a few different senses. It can refer to kind of the natural world, so like the earth, right? The world, the globe, the earth. It can refer to humanity, society in the world, right? We use actually the word world in this sense when we say things like first world or third world, right? We're not saying anything about geography. We're saying things about people, about a society. And this is the sense that John uses famously in John chapter 3, uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He's saying God so loved humanity, the people of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But, but the word cosmos can also be used in a third sense. And the third sense of the world cosmos is this idea of the age or the spirit of the world. And, and this is the way that Jesus is talking here. The, the, the system of the world the system of the world, the spirit of the world hates me because I speak against it, because I say that it is evil. It's very interesting if you kind of put these ideas juxtaposed. God loves the world, the people of the world, yet the system of the world hates God. <laughs> the, 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 the system of the age hates Jesus, the Son, the spirit of the world. Now, what's so interesting about this passage is what is the world? What is the, who is making up this spirit of the world that Jesus is referring to here? Who are these people? What is this system of the world that hates him because he's speaking out against them? And the answer is, it's the Jewish people. It's his own people. It's the descendants of Abraham. It's the people that God had called to be distinct from the world so that they could bless the world. It's the people that God had given his law to so they could know his way. And I think this at least makes you ask the question, what happened? How did this happen? How did the people that God called as the descendants of Abraham to bless the whole world, why are these same people furious when Jesus comes and heals a man that was an invalid for 38 years? How are these same people that God spoke his word to, that gave them revelation, that gave them the prophets, he gave them the writings, he gave them the law, how are these same people that had the word of God furious at Jesus, who is the embodied word of God, when he comes? And the answer is, this distinct people that God had called out from the world had slowly but surely become just like the world that they were called to bless that they were called to be distinct from. You actually see this pattern all throughout the Old Testament if you read it carefully. I know it's Master Sunday, okay? But if there's a lull in the action, during a couple of commercial breaks, 
read this afternoon Genesis 19 and then go read Judges 19, okay? If you don't do it until tomorrow, that's okay too. But do it this week. Read Genesis 19 and then read Judges 19. Genesis 19 is a very famous story. God brings destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know this story, right? Why? Because of their incredible sinfulness. They were very far from the Lord. There was no righteous people in Sodom at that time. And their sins are described. Uh, there's this very famous encounter, I won't get into the detail, with Lot when he goes in to Sodom, okay? Then go read Judges 19, okay? Now, Judges 19 is later. God has established his people. He's given them the law. He's called them out. He's blessed them. He's given the land. They've established cities. They're following after him. Go read Judges 19. And what, you, what do you find there? You actually see in Judges 19 a story that is basically the same story as the story that you read in Genesis 19, only this time it's not Sodom, it's not this pagan people, it's Gibeah, it's a city in Israel, it's Jewish people, it's people that were called of God, it's people that had the word of God. What had happened? It's people that were called out to be distinct, that God had called to bless the whole world had become just like the people that they were called to serve, that they were called to bless. They had taken on the cosmos, the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age. They had developed a Jewishness that wasn't very Jewish. And you know what? The same thing can happen with us. This, this same story has been told in the Christian church over and over. Those who've been called out of the world to bless the world can take on the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world. We can become just like the kingdoms of this earth. You know, it's interesting in, in chapter 18, John 18, when Jesus is on trial, Pilate's confused because he's like, these are the Jewish people. Aren't you of them? Like, aren't these your people? Like, and they're rejecting you as king. I thought you were supposed to be their king. You're supposed to be their Messiah. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, my, my kingdom is not of this world. And I think he's using it in the same sense there. That my, my, my kingdom is unlike any of the systems of this world. And he concludes that thought by saying, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You know what's hard about a church like Christ's Covenant? You know, you know what's hard about a church like this? Is, is you guys are so awesome. You're, you're smart. You're talented. You know, you, you, you do interesting things. So many of you, the, the very kind of people that the world is going to celebrate, that the world is going to champion. And it's very easy. In a, in, a, in, a, in a world like that, in, a, in an age like that, for this calling that God has on your life to be called out of the world, to be distinct, to be a people for his own possession. It's very easy when the world starts championing you and starts giving you all its good things and it's got some interesting stuff for you to forget the calling that the Lord has placed on your life for the word of God, for the truth of God in your life to become diluted, for you to take on a certain worldliness, for you to take on 
the spirit of the age. So I want us to ask the question, <laughs> has that happened to us? Is it happening to us? Are we of the truth? Everyone who is of the truth listens to the voice of Jesus. Or are we of the cosmos? What do we do when we hear the word of Jesus? Do we reject him? Or do we long to hear more? And before we go any further, I just want to give you a few warnings. These are warnings that I think are very real, very present for all of us that can, that can dilute the calling that God has on your life if you're a Christian. Four ways, if you will, that worldliness creeps in. The first is comfort. Comfort is a real threat to the church because comfort is so great. I mean, who doesn't want to be comfortable? But the problem with being comfortable is once you get comfortable, it's hard to get uncomfortable, right? It's hard to get uncomfortable. Once you get comfortable, I mean, you know this, right? I mean, you know this in a, in a very practical way. Once you get that nice seat on the couch, you're all settled in, you're watching the masters. Somebody says, will you get up and do this? You're like, ah, oh, if you'd have just asked me, you know. But in life, you can develop a sense of ease and comfort and totally forget about God's calling on your life to be set apart, to bless the world, to make his kingdom known in your life. You can just kind of become like the way of the world around you. Again, it's, it's not that you should never be comfortable, but is there anything in your life that is uncomfortable, that is Godward directed, right? That's a good question to ask yourself. Is there anything in your life that is uncomfortable, directed at the Lord? This is why you should be doing things like sharing your faith, right? That's hard to do. That's uncomfortable. It's easier just to kind of stay quiet and go along with things. It's hard to be intentional about sharing your faith, right? It's hard. Like we do this table talk at Sweetwater thing. To that point where you ask the question, you say, hey, will you come to me with this event? That, that can be hard. But, but are you even willing to do anything uncomfortable in order to... Answer the call that God has on your life. It's important to go on missions trips. Again, that's uncomfortable. It's a week away from work. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes money. It's important to give. It's important to give sacrificially in a way that's kind of uncomfortable. It's important to do things like host community groups at your house, right? That's hard. That's uncomfortable, right? They stay too late. They eat all your food. They make your house messy, but are you, is there anything in your life that is uncomfortable for the sake of the Lord? Or, or have you been captured by worldliness through comfort? Number two, a warning. It, it, we live in an age where there's an inability to accept limits. There are limits in the Christian life. And we live in an age that says there's no limits. Right? You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whoever you want to be. But, but God actually created a world with order and with boundaries, right? There, there, there is a design for sex. There is a design for marriage. There is a design for the church. There's a design for manhood and womanhood. There's a design for rest and work. There's a design for money. And understanding limits and laws that God has put in place for our own good is actually incredibly freeing. James, the brother of Jesus, says it's the law that gives liberty. 
It actually sets us free when we understand God's design. And it's very easy in an age like ours to make theological concessions to just get with the times rather than to understand the actual limits and boundaries and order that God has put in place that exists for our good. Are we able to accept limits? <laughs> when, when, when God's limits creep in, is your tendency to listen and to try to understand or just to push back and go along with the message of the age? Number three, uh, another thing that creeps in is this, this kind of ultimate faith in politics. We live in a hyper-political age. Now, that is a sign of secularism, right? So if you're like, why are, why, why are we so into politics these days? It's because the world's becoming more secular. Um, a secular society is incredibly concerned with politics because people need authority. And so people understand it's because we're made in the image of God, we understand there must be some authority. And if there is no God, we have to seek, find that somewhere. And so there's this obsession with the kind of political authority that is at hand. Now, I wanna say this, Christians should be engaged in the political system, just like we're engaged in every part of culture. We should work, we should paint, we should write songs, we should be in politics, we should run for office, we should write laws, we should enact those laws. Western civilization at its best reflects Christian values and a Christian worldview. In fact, the hyper-politicization of the day has put us in a way that has made even these kind of conversations incredibly hard and, and sad. Everything has become political, which is not the way it should be. When we say something like, I think sex is designed between a man and a woman, that shouldn't be a, that's not a political statement, right? Or you say something like, black lives matter, or I am vaccinated, or I am not vaccinated. None of those things are actually political statements, right? They shouldn't be. But we live in this age that is so hyper-politicized that all of these things just become so daunting and so divisive and so dividing. Again, that's what you can expect from a secular world. But that should not be true of us. We, we, should, we, we trust in the Lord. Christians should be involved in the political process. But our faith is not in politics. Our faith is in the Lord. Our faith is in his rule and in his reign, even when our political views are not even, not celebrated or not the majority. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that Christianity doesn't ever fit neatly into any political system. When, when Christians start talking about care for the poor or the immigrant, or when Christians start giving warnings against wealth, as Jesus often does, some people on the right can get really nervous. When Christians start talking about sexual ethics or human depravity or God's design for the church and family, some people on the left can get really nervous. We are to be involved in the political process, but our faith in the Lord transcends all of that. The reign of Christ, we believe in the reign of Christ, even when our politician doesn't win. We believe in love for humanity, even when someone's on the opposite side of the political aisle. In the time of Jesus, in the time of Jesus, the Romans ruled the world, but the Jews had this governor named Herod. You've heard about him. And Herod was very shrewd. 
Herod figured out how to make deals with the Romans. And in return, the Romans let him do some cool stuff. But all of his deals with the Romans kind of made concessions for Judaism. It, it made Judaism less pure than it should have been. And, and this concerns the people. Some people said that they, he shouldn't be doing this. But some people say, but yeah, but look at all that it's getting us. Herod was able to build the greatest temple that was ever built in the ancient world in Jerusalem. Herod built all these amazing cities, these modern cities. And, and so even though he was kind of selling out to the Romans on one side to gain political power, he was able to give the Jewish people all this other stuff on the other side. And some people praised him for his shrewdness. I just want to say to you, they, they developed a Jewishness that wasn't very Jewish, right? I just want to say to you, learn from this. That's never a good deal. You know what ultimately happened to the Jewish people? They ultimately tore down the temple that Herod built. They ultimately, the Romans ultimately killed many of them. They scattered them out all over the world and they lost their Jewishness and they lost their temple too. That's never a good deal to, to, to give up on the calling that you have from God in order to please some sort of calling that you might have from another man or from some worldly power. Number four, and this is related, is tribalism. Again, we live in a secular humanism age, an age of secular humanism. And secular humanism will always be incredibly tribal. If you believe that human achievement and that human experience and that human reason are the answer, humans are the answer, if that's your viewpoint, which is a humanistic viewpoint, and you still live in a world where evil exists and problems exist, then who is the problem? It can't be you or your type of human because you're enlightened or you're reasonable or you have achieved or you are whatever people say. It can't be your problem, it's always them. We just have to get rid of them. It's their problem, it's them. And this has created hyper-tribalism in our day. Again, you should expect this in a secular age. It's secularism, it's worldliness. But I see this same kind of tribalism taking hold of so many Christian hearts and lives. And Christians without any mercy and any gentleness can critique and slander and slam other Christians other people that are following after the Lord. Now, again, I'll be the first to tell you, we have differences and we can have theological disagreements. We can say, I just, it's okay for Christians to have disagreements. Christians should be able to have disagreements, but Christians are people of mercy and gentleness and humility and honor. And this kind of worldliness in the name of Christian purity is, is creating a Christianity that isn't very Christian. There's so much more I could talk about here, from money to neglect of the poor and marginalized to a lack of mission, lack of courage. But the point I'm trying to make here is worldliness can creep into the church. It can creep in so much that when the voice of Jesus actually starts to speak, we can reject him. We can push him down. 
Or you can say, I hate what he has to say. So how do you know? That's the question, right? How do you know? How do you know if this is taking hold of us? How do you know if it's taking hold of you? Which brings me to the second point, the authority. Now, interestingly, in this story, Jesus does go up to the feast. He goes privately at first. But there was so much discussion about him. Everybody was talking about Jesus in Jerusalem. And so eventually he goes up and he starts teaching in the temple. And he's questioned. And what he says, I think, really defines the whole of the Christian life here. I think this is so important for us to hear. Verse 16, he says, My teaching is not my own, but it is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus says something here very similar to something he says in other places in the New Testament where he's saying, I, I, me and the Father are one, right? I am speaking on behalf of the Father. I'm just carrying out my Father's will here. I'm trying to do what my Father has called me to do. And that's how you can test it. You can test it with what God has already revealed. You can test it with who God is. That's how you know that this is really authoritative. It's not something new. I am just telling you what God has already told you. I'm just telling you what Moses has already said. I'm just making it more clear. I'm just making it more full. You know, it's interesting. In the time of Jesus, there were a lot of Messianic leaders. As I said, the Romans were leading. These different guys would pop up. They would start revolts. They would start revolutions. And they, some of them had great influence. They, they got a lot of influence. Um, they would always have some sort of new bent on teaching and people would listen to them and people would even name the movements after them. But the Romans always dealt with them in one of two ways, usually the second way. They would either pay them off, send them somewhere else. Sometimes people took that deal because they were out for their own authority. Or the Romans would kill them and the movement would die because it was never really bigger than just the one man, just the one leader. And I almost think that Jesus kind of has some of these things in mind because he says in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Jesus is saying, I have come to seek my father's glory who is always at work, who has always been at work. And he is so committed to his father's will that he's willing to be obedient even to the point of death. And this statement, this idea, I have come not on my own authority, not for my glory, but for the glory of the one who sent me me. This idea that Jesus models perfectly, that Jesus, who is God, by the way, models perfectly, really unlocks the Christian life. Christianity is ultimately a life of forgetting about yourself and being ultimately focused on the Lord. That, that is the key that unlocks this. Christianity is a life of being rightly turned back to God and realizing that for God I was made and for God's story I live. That that, that is the key that, that, that changes your whole life. Tim Keller calls it the, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You've, you've heard of me say this before, that in the beginning, I believe that Adam and Eve were more aware of God 
They were more aware of his glory. They were more aware that they were his creation and that they existed for his glory than they were of themselves. In the beginning, Adam and Eve more God conscious than they were self-conscious. And the reason I believe this is they were naked and they didn't even know it, right? What an illustration, right? It's hard to be naked and not realize that you're naked. But if you're more aware of God, if you're totally aware of God, if you're totally captured by God and what he's doing and what his story is and his glory that's going forth and what he's displaying in his creation, if you're totally captured by God, then you're not even aware of yourself. You don't even, you forget about yourself. You, you forget about your little story or, or what you're doing or why this person's doing something more interesting than you're doing or why this person gets to do that and you only get to do that. You forget all about that because none of that matters. You realize that you're, I am here for God. I am a part of his story and thank you, Lord, that I've been invited in. What Jesus is saying here is that's, that's who I am. That's what I'm doing. Don't you see, I'm not, I'm not just here I'm not here making a name for myself. I am making a name for the Lord and you are missing it. I'm making a name for the same God that you say you serve. Yet when his own son has come, you've missed it. Has not Moses given you the law, he says? But none of you keeps it. Jesus is saying, don't you see what God is doing? Don't you see what I'm showing you? I am showing you the truth of God. I am showing you the power of God. I am showing you the promise of Abraham and you want to kill me. Do you really love God or do you just love this sense of self-righteousness and power that your little religion gives you? That's what Jesus is saying to them. And so the question for us is what about you? What about me? Who are we? Are you of the cosmos? Right? Worldliness, this, this, this way of the world, this way of the age, it's all about self-love and self-praise and self-honor. But the way of the Father is all about love for the Father, for God, for praise for God, honor for God. Are you of the cosmos or are you of the Father? Are you of the way of this world, this self-story, this self-preservation, this self-love? Or have you lost yourself in what God is doing? Have you found yourself in God's bigger story? Are you willing to lay down your life for the glory of God? Have you found yourself in this story? And if the answer is yes, and I know you know because you're in church that the answer is supposed to be yes, but how does that inform the way you serve? How does that inform the way you treat people? How does that inform the way you give? How does that inform the way you invite people into your lives? How does that inform the way you worship? How does that inform your life? I know you know the answer is yes. I, if I asked you to raise your hand right now, I know, would, I know I said, hey, who's in it for yourself or who's in it for God, right? I know all the God hands would go up, right? Because we know the answer, right? But look, I'm not gonna make you raise your hand. I'm not gonna make you raise your hand, don't worry. But really, when you, when you inventory your life, when you, when you really look at where your thought life is, where your time is, where your energy is, how you even understand your identity, who's at the center of that? Are, are you just speaking to make a name for yourself, glory for yourself, or, or have you found yourself in this bigger story that the Lord is doing? This bigger truth, 
That's how you know it's true. That's how you know it's real. That's what Jesus is saying here. I found myself in something so much bigger than just my own little message. Are you of the cosmos or are you of the Lord? Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. Now we can get real honest. All of us, when we're really honest, at best, at best, are recovering self-love addicts, okay? We have been addicted to self-love and self-preservation and self-aggrandizement and self, all of us at best (laughs) are self-love addicts. But the thing that really sets you free of this and calls you into who you're really supposed to be is this beautiful gospel of Jesus that we get to celebrate all week long and all year long in all our lives. It's the Feast of Booths, the celebration where people remember that they once tabernacled, they once lived in tents in the wilderness, and who was tabernacling among them? Who was with them? God, he was there in the tabernacle among his people. And all of that was to point to the day that God in the flesh would come and tabernacle among us. The word of God became flesh and tabernacled, lived, came to be among us. And he didn't just live among us. He lived rightly among us. He he was the one whose heart was always turned toward his father. This is why the apostle Paul later can say of Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his advantage, but he followed the will of God. He made himself a servant. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. He didn't just tabernacle among us. He lived rightly among us. And more than that, I want you to hear this. He lived rightly for us. The great news of the gospel is this, that if you look to Jesus, his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, his heart, it was always pointed toward his father, is applied to you. His record is given to you. And if you look to Jesus, the message of the cross is this, your record and my record of sin is given to him. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Was there anything he did? His heart was always turned toward the Father. He went to the cross and he suffered God's wrath for your sake and for my sake. But he didn't stay dead, as we'll celebrate next Sunday. He is now alive. And what he is doing, even right now, you know what Jesus is doing literally right now at the stave room? He's manifesting his kingdom. His kingdom, his life is manifest here. It's manifest in you. You're invited in. You're invited to be a part of this. This is you. This is Jesus is saying, now in me, this is your story. You now are the children of God. Just as I am the son of God, you now are the children of God as you look to me, as you find your identity in me, as you find your life in me. And if you believe that, and if you believe that that kingdom goes on and on and on, that will change you. That'll change the way you treat people. That'll change you spend your money. That'll change the way you spend your time. That'll change everything about your life. You'll forget about yourself. You will realize how small, you will quickly realize how small and petty and insignificant your life is and your little kingdom is compared to that kingdom. Are you of the cosmos? Or are you of the Lord? Let's pray. Father, give us 
eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. All of us, Lord, Jesus could say of us without his mercy, the world doesn't hate you because you're of the world. But in his mercy, Lord, we've been called out. We've been called to him. Father, I pray now, Lord, against the creep of the cosmos, the creep of any worldliness that can infect our hearts. I pray for conviction in this moment and renewed faith that you would give us the heart of Christ. You would make us new. You'd shape us. You'd, you'd change us, Lord. For those that have not trusted in Jesus today, I pray that you would just turn their hearts toward him. They would just see how much he loves them, how merciful he is. This kingdom that's so unlike the kingdoms of this earth. Free us, Lord, from these small and petty kingdoms, Lord, into the true kingdom, into the real story. I pray that you would do this by Jesus and for Jesus. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus.